Welcome to the Dear Katie podcast. This is Katie Kessner. And this is Claire Kaplan. As always, I wanted to remind our listeners that sometimes the discussions in our podcast can be difficult uh, and emotional for you, especially for survivors of trauma. So we encourage anyone who needs to, to take care of your safety and well-being. Reach out for emotional support from family or friends, a counselor if you have one, or a hotline. Additional resources may be found on the Take Back the Night Foundation website. We'll give you that address at the end of the podcast. Thanks so much, uh, Claire. And we are so pleased today to welcome Kemi De Silva Ibru. I hope I said your name correctly, Kemi. Yes, you uh, You are coming to us from Nigeria, yes? That's correct. And and can you say your name just so I make sure I said it correctly? That is indeed correctly. Uh, my first name is Kemi and my last name is De Silva Ibru. And yes, I am dialing in from Lagos, Nigeria, which is on the African continent. Thank you so much, Kemi. Well, we always like to start um, sharing a little bit about yourself with our guests, um, you know, so our listeners know. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, you know, how you grew up or any of your hobbies or interests? Yes, I could start with... Um my professional background, I am a consultant obstetrician and gynecologist. I've been working in this space for over 20 years now. Um, started working in public health with a special interest in social activism as it pertains to women's rights. And then this led me to establishing the nonprofit, the Women at Risk International Foundation, that addresses the prevalence of gender-based violence um, across communities in Nigeria, in Africa. So I grew up and I have worked in, I guess, over three continents, Africa, um, Europe, and in North America. Uh, my postgraduate was um, in the D.C. area. So I was at the Howard University Hospital as well as Johns Hopkins. Um, presently, back in the U.K., part-time, finishing up a Ph.D., but I run my practice and my nonprofit organization out of Nigeria. Lovely. Thank you so much, Kimmy. And that's quite a quite a twenty years journey for you already. And I'm sure so far to go. Um, you know, we always then like to ask a little bit about your survivorship and you know what brings you to your microphone. Right. So um, I'm not a survivor. Um, my interest or what compelled me into this space um, in tackling this particular problem is moving back to Africa and moving to Nigeria. Nigeria is um, the largest populated country on the African continent. There are over 200 million people and half of the population are women. It's a young country, so about 60 or over 60% of Nigerians are under the age of 24 and we have a prevalence of gender-based violence that affects one in four girls before the age of 18. So when I started my medical practice back in Lagos, I started to see disenfranchised women and girls being brought in with horrific encounters. Unfortunately, there wasn't enough infrastructure or essential services to attend to them. And that's when I started to work with them my health capacity. But as you know, there's only so much I could do because, yes, I can take you into the operating room to repair you, but sadly I didn't have the infrastructure to offer all the other necessary 
aspects that are needed in your healing journey. So um, five years ago, I guess the line in the sand for me was a young 18-month-old girl that sadly was a survivor of um, violent episode of rape by her biological father. And then I was tasked with treating her. And again, I was, you know, forced to address the issue medically, but also encounter the challenges of all the other aspects that I just listed. And I decided at that point in time that I needed more structure so that I could offer a full survivor-centered um, assistance, if you will, to survivors. And that's when I established the organization. That's incredible, Cammie. Um, You know, my, maybe uh, one question that comes to mind for me immediately is, you know, since Nigeria, you said it's such a young country with more than, I think you said 60% under the age of 26. And, you know, how does that impact um, maybe sexual violence as a whole? Do you think, it, it, you know, is there any, most sexual violence is happening when we're younger? It can happen at any age, but do you think that's um, affecting, you know, your country there? Well, I think so. I mean, I think statistically it's sort of well documented that the prevalent and the most vulnerable ages are around between the ages of 12, 13, and 18. And um, one of the pillars that the organization works under is our health pillar, and we offer free services at our rape crisis center. And so these post-incident services include not just treatment and forensic medical examinations, but we also have to offer the necessary testing as well as the um, counseling services for many of our survivors. The other thing that we had to look into, because we're not a socialist country and we are a low-middle-income country, and as I mentioned, with not enough infrastructure and essential services, was to look at social welfare. So in collating our data, in recognizing and mapping the problem, the very first thing we appreciated was the age of the survivors that we were seeing. 78% of our survivors are under the age of 18. Unfortunately and very sadly, the youngest is age one. The oldest to date now is 74. So yes, um, in keeping with, I suppose, um, other parts of the world, a large percentage of our survivors are in that vulnerable age group. And I have a question um, in making decisions about structuring your organization and providing the services that you do. Um, did you uh, were you did you have trouble finding people who could actually you know provide the appropriate services? I'm thinking specifically more about counseling, for example, working with children, pediatric counselors or you know, teenagers are very different. So, you know, I'm wondering, um, did you find the specialists you needed to work with the different age groups? So um, you're absolutely right. We did recognize that, I mean, a lot of the counseling services that are offered are very age appropriate and specific. Um, we do have trained social workers and counselors in Nigeria. Um, I felt that it was in addition to the expertise that they offered and in my mind also the um if you will more local influences you know the nuances that were important in caring for women in this part of the world understanding the language for instance and you know understanding the various um cultural 
practices that um, a lot of these women have been subjected to that are unfortunately um, not, um, they're harmful, if you will. I also recognize that we needed to have that standardized care. So we partnered with the Washington, D.C. Rape Crisis Center, and I'm sure as you're aware, yes, they're the oldest rape crisis center in um, America. And um, I was very fortunate enough to have the well, present executive director, Indira Hanad, visit Africa, visit Nigeria, and visit the center. And she was also able to offer some um, social work training, if you will, in, um, in a workshop environment for my counselors. So um, we were able to benefit from having proper intervention trauma that, as you said, was age-specific and appropriate for our survivors, but transferring the skills to social workers that were from Nigeria so were able to work in the context of, you know, the social nuances and the cultural nuances that these women live in. I have so many questions. Okay. I'm gonna, if it's okay, Katie, I'm going to ask a couple more. Um, okay. Um, in my, am I, am I work at the University of Virginia? I had the, um, privilege of meeting a number of young, uh, leaders from the African continent who came for a special program uh, for several summers. And there was always someone from Nigeria who worked on these issues. Um, in particular, um, one woman, I'm afraid I blanked out on her name, but who worked, um, on, with an organization that was trying to recover the young women who were kidnapped. And um, what was that? The late, the girls that were kidnapped in the yes. incident. Yes. And, and others apparently. So, and she was very active in that. And I was wondering if you um, worked with other organizations in sort of a collaborative way um, or, and um, what your experience has been with that. But also you mentioned the kind of cultural practices um, and uh, the, the women I met who were involved with this work um, also brought that up and how you have to work with a very local um, communities, the leaders, the elders um, in helping change um, perspectives on these young women um, and uh and how they see them and they value them after they've been um, assaulted. So I was wondering what your experience has been with those issues. Right. Well, with regards to collaboration and partnerships, very big on that. I mean, there's just shared magnitude of the problem speaks to the fact that it cannot be handled, in my opinion, by either governmental agencies alone or CSOs or non-governmental agencies. It has to be a collaborative effort. Um, with regards to sex trafficked girls or girls that, um, in this particular example you've given that were kidnapped, yes, part of um, our mandate is to address all forms of gender-based violence, including sex trafficked girls. So we work alongside a governmental agency, the NAPTIP, and that's a national agency that addresses um, the prohibition of um, people at risk or trafficked as well as other CSOs that work in that space. One of the um, aspects that we've been able to offer in our counseling is assistance with reintegration back into um, communities, especially young girls that have been rescued from other parts of the world because they have been trafficked. Um, the other question you were asking was with regards to the different pillars that we work under and my experiences with that. So what we've done 
at our organization is we work on the three specific pillars. So this was a framework that we designed and we mapped and then tested. And based on the measured impact, we then decided that we would scale. So in addition to the health, which I've just discussed under our intervention and our post-incident care facility, we have preventative programs that we implement under our educational um, pillar as well as our community service pillar. Now, with our community service pillar, we recognize that unlike the impression that a lot of times one gets that Nigeria is a very modern and a very bustling metropolitan city, which it is in certain areas, the reality is 54% of Nigeria is still very much rural without you know, the basic infrastructure that you need to be able to scale a lot of the programs that you would imagine. So what we did under our community service pillar was we created community-based programs that we take into these communities. And we started to recognize the stakeholders in these communities. For example, we have the traditional birth attendant. Now, this is an informally trained healthcare provider. And what she does is she is the frontline healthcare provider for all women and girls in her community, albeit not formally trained. Now, yes, as a gynecologist, I could tell you a lot of challenges I have with that, probably especially with my maternal mortality rate. But the reality is I can't ignore the role she serves. And so what we decided to do was to engage her and then train her by offering her a proper you know, toolkit on addressing cases of gender-based violence. So to date, we've trained over 3,000 and counting. And what we were able to do, which was very exciting, was during the COVID first 2020 period, where we had all the mandatory lockdowns and there was an established shadow pandemic with a 20% increase in um, domestic and sexual violence. We saw these cases. And unfortunately, we were um, in cities unable to reach these women in hard-to-reach places. So we galvanized our traditional birth attendants. And in that year, with 1,800 attendants, we were able to reach 150,000 women. I was very fortunate enough to speak on this particular initiative at the TED Woman in that 2020 year. And it was uh, an initiative that was um, established as an in-person. We were able to then, during the COVID, COVID, and use them by communicating with them and having them go into their environments and communities and see and address the issues that were occurring amongst these women. So we've been able to use the gatekeepers, that's what it's called, the gatekeepers project, to push and scale up to other communities. And then we started working with other gatekeepers, like the police force, for instance. The challenges we have with the police is, unfortunately, Many of them may not have the sensitivity to address the cases of rape, as well as understanding the importance of processes and protocols that need to be put in place. So we started to implement workshops, and we started the workshops first um, in our communities, and then we started to partner with other organizations like, for instance, the International Association of Retired Police Chiefs in D.C., and we were able to then offer these 
training programs as a hybrid where they were able to dial in and, um, you know, utilize the online platforms. And then we were in person offering this training services in, a, in real time. And so what we've done now is, again, scale these initiatives and hoping to reach as many police stations and police and law enforcement officers so we can change that narrative. And I'm going somewhere with this. And then finally, our tertiary gatekeepers are the religious and traditional rulers. Nigeria, as many low-middle-income countries are on the African continent, there is a strong presence when it comes to the religious influences and the role of that traditional leader in these communities. And they're the natural mediators already of many of these cases, and they come with a huge sphere of influence. So now for us to change the narrative, we have to change not necessarily their mindset, but at least change their understanding of how women are viewed. Nigeria is a patriarchal country, and we do have many cultural practices that are positive and enhancing, but unfortunately, we also have many practices that are harmful to women and girls. And so as a result of that, we have many situations and instances where young girls and women are so socialized in environments and homes that are violent that they have no insight as to the extent of the problem. And so this is where we have to start working with the community because there is an enabling aspect to these communities when it comes to these cases. And as we know, globally, the perpetrator is usually at home with the survivor. So you're already dealing with that layer of um, shame and the stigmatization and the silence that come with these cases. But we don't have enough platforms for these young girls and women to speak out against this. So this is where we are trying to push back and change that narrative. Sorry, that was a very long response. No, that was wonderful because it really helped. I think it helped our listeners understand the the degree of work, the enormous amount of work that's necessary to set up a system so people can get the services they need. I mean, it's not just let's start an organization and do something, right? It's it's You have to be cognizant of all the layers and as you mentioned you know the you mentioned political you mentioned cultural you mentioned the, there's the, so much intersectionality when it comes right to anyway. right one last little piece though is how do you get funding now what we've been <laughs> and I, oh, i'm taking a huge breath here because yes we have, <laughs> we have the challenges of funding as with any non-profit organization and i think even more so because we're dealing with a problem that mm, I wouldn't say is very high up there on the list of the priorities of um, you know, challenges when it comes to women and girls. Um, we've been fortunate enough to um, have some international partners. Um, presently, we're working with the UN Women on one of our educational programs in the tertiary institutions. Um, we were or are the first to implement the very first online classroom on the prevention of campus sexual violence. And so um, in partnership with the UN Women, under an, it's called the EU-UN Spotlight Initiative, we've been able to implement this program as a hybrid to um, over 7,000 students in over 106 universities across the country. 
And so with these partnerships, yes, we're able to, again, um, address, you know, the issue with, you know, various targeted audiences in this particular example I'm giving with the tertiary um, students. We also have funding from organizations like the Ford Foundation, um, the Gatekeepers Project I spoke of. Um, we've, we've partnered with them on that. We have local funding from um, certain private organizations and corporations in um, that regard, but it's just never enough. I mean, the problem is just so um, huge, if you will, that you know, we're just constantly trying to scale up and trying to reach as many girls and women as possible. And that's what I hear. And I know it's what Katie hears. I mean, all of us who are active in this movement here, and it's true here in the United States, but the funding is level is so different. And, and in countries that are under-resourced in one way or another, um, in, where it's not a priority, it's, I, it's, I know it's very challenging. I mean, I, in my travels in Central and South America in particular, I mean, they, they are wholly dependent on funding from European feminist organizations and the UN, you know, to get the most basic um, services for, for survivors of violence. So it's, it's, yeah, it's very challenging. I know. Um, Kemi, I don't know what other pieces of information you'd like to share. You've already shared so much, but the one opposite side of the, the question or the equation and the problem are the perpetrators of the sexual violence. And I don't know if you could speak to what's being done to raise awareness and prevent sexual violence as well. Well, um, yes. So perpetrators are, as with any part of the world, the primary problem. I think in my part of the world, um, unfortunately, we just do not have enough um, policy change and implemented laws to um, tackle this problem successfully. Um, I speak of, for instance, the existing laws that we have, good enough laws, um, you know, laws that protect girls and women as they should address the issue of rape and um, all other aspects of gender-based violence. But this is um, a law that's been domesticated in only 28 of our 36 states, for instance. And so begs the question, what happens, you know, in these other states? Um, we have law enforcement, but again, Conviction rates do not suggest that, you know, enough is being done in that regard. And so um, it's the needle is moving, albeit very, very slowly. And, um, yes, it's one of the areas, policy change and, you know, implementation of the actual, um, you know, prosecution and conviction of these cases is an area that, you know, we've been advocating and a lot of um, other CSOs in this part of the world um, have been pushing for. I think that's the greatest challenge is, you know, that's the chicken and the egg. Both sides of this problem have complicated solutions. And obviously one of the things I heard you say that I'm, I think I hope our listeners will really think about because even in the U S even in the U S we're, you know, one country, but there's so many diverse cultures and, parts to working successfully with survivors and perpetrators that merits nuances, you know, and I wonder if even within Nigeria, do you find that there's diversity of experience and 
Oh, yes, without a doubt. Without a doubt. I mean, Nigeria is a country of 36 states, as I mentioned. Um, half of the population are women. Half of the population are Muslim. The other half are Christian. When it comes to our ethnicity, I mean, we have at least 300 different ethnic groups. And they all have different cultural practices. Many of them perhaps similar. And so when you're dealing with this problem... You have to recognize that, you know, albeit it is one country, and yes, we do have the same, if you will, um, criminal code, there are these um, cultural aspects that weigh in, and um, they have to be looked at, and the problem has to be addressed through that lens. I have two total opposite questions. So let me ask one and you can answer whatever you want. And then I'll ask a second. First one is, could you share, I mean, you mentioned the one, the two year or 18 month old baby, you know, can you, to make this story feel very real for our listeners, do you mind sharing generally, generally the stories that you've encountered or the survivors you've encountered in your work? Oh yeah. Um, yes, I, I don't mind. It's, um, it's one, like you said, that is so important to remember that these aren't just numbers, that these are um, young girls and women, and each of them have a story, and each of them have lives that sadly um, need to be transformed. I mean, my advocacy journey, as I said, started with being a healthcare provider and being exposed to these young girls. I did mention my line in the sand with that one particular case, but unfortunately, it's not the only case that I had to deal with. I, I couldn't tell you why that particular case hit so hard because I had young children previously and I'm sad to say I've treated young children even after. Um, I think a lot of times when you're working in the space that we work in, um, it's difficult because, you know, you want to be able to save everyone. I address the whole problem through a leave no one behind mentality so for me, it's always the glass is half full and half empty. Um, my center, for instance, has seen over 3,000 girls, um, and we've offered free care to each and every one of them. And um, it's work that, you know, we know um, has to continue and has to be scaled up. So um, I see these young girls, they come in, um, Many of them, as you can imagine, broken. Many of them not having a voice. Many of them not even being recognized as having these horrific encounters. And they suddenly have a place where they can disclose in the safety of um, uh, an environment that offers proper medical attention and counseling. And so their healing begins. And then you start to see the transformation um, when you see them on a monthly basis. Because as I mentioned, um, in addition to the traditional services that a rape crisis center offers, we had to understand, again, the environment that we live in and recognize that we had to offer, in addition to those services, more long-term services. So we had to look at social welfare because, unfortunately, this young girl couldn't go home and pick up the phone and call for housing. So we had to offer her shelter, and then we had to take her out of that place of abuse. The girl that wanted justice, she didn't know how to get a lawyer. She couldn't even afford one. So we had to make sure that we could offer legal aid. And then, as I mentioned, the vocational skills. Um, in my part of the world, 
I mean, close to 8 million girls are out of school, and so therefore they need a vocational skill if they're going to be economically empowered. And because they're not economically empowered, they then have to be forced into homes and situations of violence where they cannot leave. So we had to address that by making sure that there were vocational skills that were being offered that she could make that right decision. And so we see them because they come back for monthly group counseling sessions because, again, it was something that we had to set up. And you just see the transformation with each month when they come through, just talking to like-minded young girls and women that had similar encounters. Because, as I said, many of them don't have a platform to speak on it. So many of them, for instance, we went to an education program for, um, I guess that would probably be middle school, because it is with children, young girls, about 15, 14, 15. And um, we were talking about this issue, as we always do, because we offer um, programs for that age, um, both for boys and girls. And I had one young girl say to me that, well, I don't understand why no one has um, tried to rape me because everyone keeps talking about all these cases and telling stories and I never um, had an experience. And I was saying to her that, well, that's what we're hoping for. We're hoping that, you know, every young girl is like you and she doesn't have to deal with these experiences. And this child looks at me and goes, well, my uncle uses my back passage, but then I'm still a virgin, so I don't like it, but I guess it's okay. So that speaks to how socialized, um, you know, the level of abuse is where, you know, she, in her mind, doesn't even recognize that this is being perpetrated on her. And then we look at the boys, because for me personally, I've always been of the opinion, and I feel very strongly about this, that to change the narrative, we have to include men and boys in the conversation. I live in a world and I live in a country where men listen to men. I live in a country where 90% of the perpetrators are men. And so we need to start changing that narrative. And so we started to offer specific, well-designed programs for young boys between the ages of 12 and 16, just mentoring programs so that we start to change their narrative. And we did this because when we sent out anonymous surveys to understand their mindset, 1,200 surveys, one in five came back saying they would walk away if they see a young girl being abused. Again, these are young boys that are socializing these same homes and so have become immune, if you will, to these acts of violence because it's all around them. So, yes, um, I see the cases, I see the young girls, I see the women, and um, just one woman, one girl at a time because I honestly believe in spite of all of this that we all deserve a right to live in an environment that's free of rape and sexual violence. Yes, so very true. That is so beautifully said. I, I have just one, maybe I'll think of another one, but one more question around what you said about reaching the men. And I, I thought it was very powerful for you to say, we, I live in a country where men only listen to other men. Um, here in the U.S., we've been doing a lot of work around engaging men in sexual violence prevention, um, it, you know, in high school and college. Have you all begun work on recruiting men to be 
the leaders and, and working with other men? Yes, Katie. So the um, program I was referring to is called the Boys Conversation Cafe. And it's a mentoring program that we take into these, sec- well, we call them secondary level schools. But like I said, there's probably the middle school level in the educational system back in the States. And um, so we have mentors, as you said, young men, old men, men that, you know, can share stories, men that could be regarded as good role models, you know, and these um, young men and older men, um, I keep referring to them as young men because majority of our volunteers are young. Um, they, um, yeah, so they undergo a training um, program with us. And then as mentors, they go into these schools and they serve as facilitators in our um, Boys Conversation Cafe. And this intervention, um, we're tracking and measuring and we're seeing the impact. And it's one that, again, I'm excited about and I'm hoping we can scale up across as many communities as possible. That sounds promising. Um, And uh, the other question similarly is, you know, we've we've taken good steps also, I think, to try to quantify with data collection, the changes in attitudes and, you know, ultimately, hopefully, behavior. It's harder to measure behavior change. But have you done something similar with the that work? Yes, it's funny you mentioned. So um, I'm actually, as we speak, in the middle of doing a PhD. And my thesis is actually on this intervention program because I felt I feel so strongly about it that I think you know it can um, undergo the necessary scientific rigor of um, a PhD program and it will support with published data the impact um, of the work like you rightly said um, knowledge base is the an, a very easily measured um, output or outcome depending on what your objective is and it's harder when it comes to attitudinal change and behavioral change what we do at the um, organization in measuring that is we run these programs in cycles of four weeks. And what we then do is we leave the program in that school under um, a boys club. So we have the ambassadors that have been through the program talk about the program in their boys clubs. And then when we go back the following year to implement the program in another school cycle, we then go back into the boys' clubs to measure and see what the impact has been. Um, The other thing that I did um, or I'm doing as part of my thesis is to talk to the teachers and then to talk to the parents. Uh, Part of the program is a parents' forum where we can actually speak to parents. Um, One, because... Children just don't have um, a space or a platform to speak to their parents honestly about what's going on. And um, so we're able to provide that safe space. Also, it empowers the parents to be able to speak on, um, you know, the challenges that they have in not being able to deal with these issues, especially the mothers. If um, the perpetrator happens to be that financial provider, for instance, in the home. And so one of the things that I was looking at was to ask about the changes that they may have noticed in the boys, especially the boys that had been through the program. And it's so heartwarming to hear 
you know, you know, the, the, the change towards this, their female siblings, for instance, or, you know, even their mothers, um, the choice of words they use and, you know, the fact that they, their whole mindset is being turned from being potential perpetrators to being protectors of girls and women. So it's a work in progress. Um, I don't have enough um, data yet to support that indeed attitudinal and behavioral change is indeed uh, no, present. But I think we just need a few more years of scaling up this program, and I'm confident that we would be able to statistically show that this is indeed happening. Yeah, my one, I just want to go back to one clarification. Kemi, I apologize. I'm not sure if I caught exactly when you said um, about the protectorship of men, like men thinking themselves as protectors. I feel like in the U.S., and I don't know if you agree, Claire, we went through a phase where the first the first way we changed men was we tried to say, oh, you can be supermen. You can be our, our saviors. Our, our, you can protect us from predators, the really bad men. And then we realized that that still breeds a different type of misogyny. And one is not you know, how do you rank which is worse? <laughs> and so n- then we're getting to this phase of, you know, we throw about toxic ma- masculinity and har- harmful. So where do you think you all are on that? Um, I think, I mean, I see, I, I see your point um, clearly about the um, issue of toxic masculinity and then placing too much emphasis on this protectorship, if you will, if that's such a word. But um, I, I think we are at the point in time where we have a patriarchal country where, as I said, there's the natural male dominance, women are subjugated and can't speak out. And then these practices that I spoke of earlier, I'll give another example very quickly. In the part of Nigeria, in the southern part of Nigeria, there's this um, traditional practice of money brides. Now, these are young girls, many of them sometimes not even born yet, that are sold into other families in view of a debt. Now, this financial debt could be as little as $20. And what happens is this child is then taken into this other home at a very young age, and she's then subjected to horrific acts of sexual abuse. She's, quote-unquote, married at an early age, usually um, at puberty, She's forced to start childbearing in her teenage years. She's not sent to school. And she's then, um, if you will, just left in this horrific life for the rest of her life. If she tries to escape, the family have the right to go back to her family to ask for another money bride because she's left. Now, when you go into these rural communities, the clansmen, who are the traditional rulers, are the ones that mediate over these cases. They're the ones that decide whether or not, you know, you can or cannot take a money bride. So we recognize very quickly that in trying to talk to them, it was very difficult to change the um, existing cultural practice because it's one that they participated in. So we decided to talk to the younger generation of men the youths, because these were the men that would then take over in terms of the leadership structure 
of these communities. So if we were able to change their environment and their mindset and employ them to, as we said, protect their girls, protect your sisters, protect your would-be daughters, you know what I mean, protect your nieces and so on, then you prevent these money grooms from coming to trade on your um, female um, relatives, as it were. So that's where, I suppose, in my opinion, the protection is an advantage. Now, again, you know, could the needle shift so left that it now becomes there in the issue? Yes. But we're so far from that right now that we're still dealing with just changing the mindset of an existing culture that just encourages the subjugation of girls and women. I had that question in my mind too, Kitty, but I knew also I was thinking, you know, depending on uh, where a, a culture is in terms of their own practices and their traditional practices and what is beneficial and what is not, that's sort of, um, you have to take different approaches and be really flexible about what will work where people are, basically opening the gate where they are. Um, well, then, of course, I mean, Katie, recognizing that the balances should always be, um, you know, try, you know, trying to keep the balance, if you will. Right. And I think, you know, the art of change is the art of compromise and finding some common ground where we can start. So right. that has always, yes, exactly. it's always been, can be the way, you know, my journey for 30 years here since I was the instigator of change, although you, you thought you've succeeded, you know, beyond my imagination. You've completely blown me away today. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I think when I started out my journey, Kemi, the things I were, I was thinking about were building those bridges and building alliances and not, and, and working where you could, if you can only make, two steps instead of 10, you take two. I, you don't, I never was the one protesting for 10 at a time, you know? So I think, I think you have to start somewhere and then it, it takes more time, but oftentimes it also builds to me a longer, more permanent change. Right. Exactly. And, and you, I think you, that's very well said. And, and to that end, um, how do you maintain your energy, your well-being, uh, the spirits of the people who are in this work, uh, given all the challenges that are in front of you? What do you do for self-care and for? Um, well, I mean, there is definitely emotional fatigue, without a doubt, um, and it's. But then the the, the whole idea of having the privilege to be able to offer and provide care and assistance to these women and girls where you know ordinarily they would not have access. I mean, it's such a responsibility. It's, it's, it's rejuvenating. It alleviates emotional fatigue because you're, um, I mean, you're working on a, on a totally different plane, I think, when it comes to that sort of work. It's as my... Um, one of my very good friends always says that she says, Kemi, you do hard work as well as hard work. And I think, I think, I think that sort of, you know, summarizes it. Yes. I think that we all do that in, to whatever degree we can. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I am so 
glad we got to speak with you, Kemi, and thank you for your incredible work. And you're such an inspiration to, I think, anyone who wants to be an effective agent of change on nearly any any issue, especially one so challenging as it, you know, negotiates amongst the psychological care, the physical well-being, the the the, the policy is the law. It's every aspect, um, education, you know, all of it. So congratulations and. Please um, know that our listeners will be, I'm sure, inspired by you. So thank you for joining us. And thank you very much for having me. Um, Enjoyed my hour with both of you. And um, yes, it's been very rewarding. Thank you. Absolutely. It is our pleasure. Yeah. Well, and also um, thank you again, Kimmy, for being present, sharing your, uh, your story and your work with us. And also thanks to all our listeners who joined us for this episode of Dear Katie Survivor Stories. And if you need support but don't know where to find it, please visit takebackthenight.org for a list of resources and how to reach our legal support hotline. You can also help other survivors by subscribing to the podcast and sharing it far and wide so that people learn about us. Please consider posting it on your pod, on, on your social media and make sure to follow us on ours. Dear Katie is completely produced by an amazing group of volunteers. So thanks so much to them. And thank you listeners for being present today. And as always, remember, self-care is essential to healing and to thriving. And, and thank you again to our listeners. Please join us in another week or two for the next episode of the Dear Katie podcast. Take care and be well. Be well.